This is a public service announcement from the California lawmakers still want to talk about Age of Consent Consortium. Boy, I sure love swinging on the swings at the park while my older brother eggs passing cars. Childhood is the best. Hey, kid. Yeah, mister? You want to feel good? Uh, gee, mister, I don't know. Want to feel like you're better than others, kid? Well, I guess it would be nice to hold something over my brother's head. I've never really forgiven him for putting snails in my shoe when I was six. How old are you now, kid? I just turned 12, mister. Perfect. You're old enough to shoot up without parental consent. What's shooting up, mister? Uh, yeah. It's when I jam this syringe in your arm and you get a little piece of easily counterfeitable paper saying you can get into Canada without incident. Why would I want to go into Canada, mister? I'll tell you why, kid. Canada's turned into a draconian biomedical police state, just like our beloved California. But instead of perfect weather and beaches, you get negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit and hockey. Pretty great trade-off, huh? Gee, I don't know, mister. Look, kid. You want to hold the moral high ground against your uppity older brother or not? You want to get the illness anyway that this thing is supposed to protect you against or not? Wait, what? It's real easy, kid. See, I'm going to bypass your innate immunity and shoot some fancy technology into your arm. It'll spread throughout your body and camp out in your testicles. Then you'll be just as likely to get sick as you were beforehand. But now you can get a programming job at Uber, and shitlibs will approve of you. And I can lord it over my older brother? Your brother's a Ron Paul kid, right? Yeah, he's always talking to me about Austrian economics. It's real boring, mister. Like 92% of male libertarians, he's liable to become an incel. Perfect. Then, yeah, you shoot up right here in this park, and you enjoy righteous superiority over Amish people in Montessori schools. And your brother. Gee, mister, sounds really swell. But my parents, they would never let me shoot up in a park. They helped Kentucky Libertarian Senator Thomas Massey fell, harvest, and install his own timber and quarry his own stone for his solar-powered off-grid cabin. They're religiously opposed to state interventions of any kind, mister. Listen here, kid. Psst. Your folks don't gotta know. This can be our little secret. Something doesn't feel right about making a secret agreement to shoot up drugs with a random adult stranger at a park. Don't sweat it, kid. This isn't a pact between you and a creepy stranger. This is a perfectly legal arrangement between you and the great state of California. You mean the state of California is de facto a creepy adult stranger? You bet. And the state of California wants to legislate age of consent. But, mister... Won't my anarcho-capitalist parents just eventually figure out that I shot up with you in a park for moral superiority and to attend a Toronto Raptors game? You know, so I could maybe sit with Drake? Like after the 2019 championship when he acted like he had just personally defeated Golden State? I want my chips with the dip. I want my chips with the dip, that's all I know. I don't want my chips playing, I want my chips with the dip. Bring up this. 
but, but yeah, like, won't the state send my parents some sort of documentation? No way, kid. We wrote in a provision that would send your subhuman witch doctor parents false documentation. They won't suspect a thing. Gee, swell. Roll up your arm, kid. This is fun, mister. Say, are you gonna aspirate that needle? No! This has been a public service announcement from the California lawmakers still want to talk about Age of Consent Consortium. Hi, I'm California State Senator Scott Wiener. Wieners just love to be politicians, don't we? Who could have guessed it? But I'm incredibly disappointed my pet project, California State Bill 866, will not move forward this year due to my reactionary colleagues who don't realize the importance of the state wheedling its way between parents and their kids. But have no fear. Rockefeller Foundation toadies who want to erode the family unit and replace it with the metaverse and daddy government, myself and other age of consent warriors will be waiting in the wings to jam this bill through at the mere whiff of the next pandemic, which is coming. Trust me. <laughs> Global Virome Project, anyone? So those Ludites out there opposed to gain-of-function pathogens getting cooked up in hundreds of taxpayer-funded secret biolabs in foreign countries owned entirely by U.S. corporations, you can gain-of-suction my balls. Wiener out. I'll be back. I want my kids with the bits, that's all I know. What's up, you sparkling Pacific Ocean wave crests and hovering hummingbirds? Welcome to the Barbarian Noetics Podcast, where we stay dedicated to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting this status quo. I am, as always, your loyal host, Little Raven. And I am super stoked to be here with you guys today. It's really good to be back in the saddle, on the mic. I was able to produce an original called Open last week at least, but the rest of the episode was rebooted from a, from a 2019 conversation with Jessa Reed. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And, uh, but I'm really happy to be back with a full original episode this week for my beloved listeners and patrons. Uh, patrons, you are the L-theanine in my mood-stabilizing vitamin water and the paletas in my Mishwakana. Paletas are ice pops and Mishwakana is a little, a little town in Mexico where over 25 years ago, uh, the founder of La Michoacana uh, began making paletas or ice pops and distributing them from his push cart in Central California. The name La Michoacana and the image of the little girl from Michoacan that identified his paleta soon became a trusted and preferred brand across the country. And that's on my mind because I noticed a La Michoacana in Phoenix the other night and discovered that it was a ice pop situation. So I'm gonna be trying those. I also recently tried uh, Mexican sushi for the first time. Holy shit, I don't always eat beef, but when I do, I get a carne asada roll. Oh, oh shit, tasty. Anyways, that's not why we are gathered here today. We are gathered here today for a podcast, and I'm very humbled and happy that you guys joined, decided to spend some time with me today. I am coming at you uh, from a Monday afternoon, late Monday afternoon, getting a little bit of a late start, but definitely 
gonna get this bad boy out in South Phoenix. It's a hazy, hot tail end of the summer. We had another nice monsoon storm last night, which is like a bonus cherry on top monsoon because they don't normally happen this late in the season. So I'm here for it. I got my rain collecting bucket out. It's almost all the way full. So I'll be using that to water my plants. Uh, my cacti are doing fantastic. My sweet potatoes are going gangbusters. I really need to harvest them soon. But I did manage to get a tomato plant planted, or repotted, I should say, a grape tomato and it's in my grow tent. So I'm gonna be trying to grow that bad boy indoors. I will definitely keep you all posted. I am going to start growing some cucumbers. I got big plans, big plans in the urban apartment garden here. And I will, of course, keep you guys posted. So um, this episode is a fun one. And, um, you know, we got the zany audio tidbits as always. Uh, the veggies this week piggyback off of the genetic engineering episode I did a couple weeks ago. And this week we look at a particularly pu- uh, particularly peculiar and dangerous, in my opinion, DARPA initiative called Insect Allies. DARPA, of course, friend of the show, uh, big funder. Um, you know, they're the ones that kind of, they send Mayor Pete out to threaten me with disappearances every once in a while if I step out of line. But, you know, overall, uh, good, good people over at DARPA. And they're doing this thing called Insect Allies which, uh, which you know, just a, just a normal thing that's gonna introduce hordes of genetically modified insects into the environment. Insects that have been uh, infected, genetically infected with synthetic viruses. And certainly that would never attain dual use as a biological weapon or even a means of deploying a self-spreading genetic therapy uh, or a self-spreading synthetic virus, you know. It would never be misused like that, I'm sure, because, I mean, DARPA, is it's the Defense uh, Advanced Research Project Agency, but it could also be the uh, DAPR, the DAPR Advanced Research Project Agency, and it's just nothing more dapper and daring than some genetically modified crickets fucking feeding on corn and changing the genetic structure of the corn, and then I eat that shit. So anyways, <laughs> we get into that. We get into the insect allies. And then um, I talk about a Gates Foundation funded project called the World Mosquito Project, which, you know, just injects mosquitoes with a special bacteria that targets the reproductive system of the mosquitoes and fucks with their reproductivity and also like disperses itself. This bacteria, once you introduce it, it it only allows reproduction of mosquitoes that carry that bacteria. So just completely altering the ecosystem in totally unpredictable ways. And they are releasing these en masse in the wild as we speak. Uh, so I get into the, the World Mosquito Project, a unholy uh, marriage between the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. And I play a short video of uh, Whitney Webb on James Corbett's show where she breaks down a little bit of the Welcome Trust and what these people are all about. So some fun veggies this week, some, some kind of bonkers, like makes your head explode veggies, but that's what we all he- are here for. That's what we come to the Barbarian Noetics podcast for. So if you guys do uh, derive some value from the show I put out every week for free, Please support the podcast. I'm trying to achieve my dreams. I want to get south of the border. I want my mobile BMP studio. And you can help it happen, help make my dreams come true by hopping over to patreon.com slash noetics, signing up at any tier. Uh, the, the tiers start at just $1 a month. So 
you know, literally one fifth of the amount that you spend on your co- your coffee every day. Hopefully you don't go to Starbucks. Hopefully BMP listeners don't go to Starbucks and they support some independent coffee shops because Starbucks, you're talking huge volume. You're talking, they, they don't have the quality control. What happens is there's the beans in the roast. A few of the beans crack open. They don't just crack, they crack open and then they burn up in the roast. And if you don't remove those by hand, it makes the coffee taste burnt, which is why Starbucks coffee tastes burnt. So don't go to Starbucks anyways. For the one-fifth of the price of a coffee, you can help keep the BMP on the air and help me to achieve my dreams and send me to Nicaragua and Southern Mexico and then I'll be doing even more content and it'll be really like inspired content because I'll be out of the country in a new place speaking a new language and uh, I'll be able to support myself with the podcast. So please help the dream come true. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash noetics. Uh, or you could make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash noetics as well. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have not all done, uh, if you have not done so already, please give me those sweet, sweet five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts or Castbox or wherever you're allowed to leave reviews. And that is quite enough housekeeping for today. Spread the word. Tell a friend about the BMP. Introduce them to an episode they might be interested in. Uh, you can email the show barbarian.noetics at gmail.com. Send me a haiku. I will read it on the air. I love you all. Let's get into this episode. Peace. your age almost double digits thank you how are you baby how old are you how old are you almost double figures you know what they say the grass is 10 years old it's okay to play ball and my balls are basically inert onions at this point i really mean it cut into my nuts and you'll cry like hunter tears falling into a white claw in a sensory deprivation tank between hits of crack cocaine. I'm the guy that puts you away for smoking crack, but only if you aren't my son, and only if you live in the dirty inner cities, racial jungle, where God-fearing police keep the vermin off the streets, and they are in jail, in jail. But not Hunty, because he's a protected class. He's got me saved in his phone, Pat Pete. I really mean it, it's normal stuff. Ruin classes. Well, listen here, Jack. 
We gotta unite this country. I'm not the president of the blue team or the red team or the fuchsia team or the brown shirt team. I'm president of the entire country of Ukraine. That's why MAGA Republicans are pure evil domestic terrorists. MAGA Republicans are the Untermensch. We're bringing fascism back, Jack. And not just because of the Azov Battalion neo-Nazi heroes, as Jon Stewart gives awards to at Disney World, right next to Mickey Mouse. And because my intelligence agency handlers want me to stand here with a red background, like Mussolini, with faceless Marines behind me, and condemn 30% of the country. That's called United. We need a final solution, fat. These are hard truths, but sometimes you can't have your ice cream until you give your speech, and until you wield the FBI as a political tool against your nemesis. You see, Hillary Clinton never got raided. Bill's best buds were that nice fellow, Jeffrey Epstein, who had that beautiful island in the tropics. Me and Hunter always wanted to go until that witch hunt landed him in jail. And we had to work with the royal family and MI5 to suicide him in the Supermax facility. And this is what is to me is to be true. MAGA Republicans don't respect the Constitution. They want to take us backwards to America where we have a well-regulated militias. It's not a amendment, it's a threat. Assault weapons are a political term. We're taking your rifles and we're going to take them all away. Violence is wrong, Jack, unless it's wielded by the state or covertly deployed against grassroots populist movements in the global south. It's our lithium, Jack. Us. We want it. And we're gonna take it. It's the monopoly on violence. I really mean it. It's the soul of this great nation. So my fellow Kim Americos, may bless night this grand public. And God states the united blessed father's founding for the good of the apple tree. We're gonna say we cut it down when we cut it down. I give you my word as a Biden. And all I know how to do is lie. There's something to fear and fear itself. So how can you help me? Because I'm not asking. I'm never gonna help you. Bank of International Settlements. Night, God, American blessings, and forgive us our fuck-ups, because we never, ever forgive the MAGA Republicans who need to be publicly hunted and hung. Bring them back to firing squad. Good night, peasants. Vote fast and vote furious. Daddy's gonna govern you hard. President Joe Biden out. Let me get down here a compendium of the things that are in the bill. One, the death penalty. It provides 53 death penalty offenses. Weak as can be, you know? We do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. That's weak stuff. We do everything but hang people for jaywalking. We do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. We do everything but hang people for jaywalk, 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 jaywalk. We should all agree the answer is not to defund police, it's to fund the police.
fam it's monday night labor day night here along the banks of the rio salado in south phoenix and i am reporting to you live it's live for me and when you hear it it'll be live for you the mystery of the wormhole of time (laughs) and you know i have a lot on my mind right now so i'm thinking about mortality a lot right now so I just wanted to um, hop on the mic and express some feelings I have about it. And yeah, I've just had, there's been like pretty decent amount of death in my life lately. And when the spirit is gone, the spirit is gone (laughs) from this reality. like. And what's interesting is that even though I say that, and I I really feel that to be very, very true and deeply true, the spirit is still present. And so it's mysterious and beautiful. And it (laughs) relates to quantum physics. (laughs) And I know there's probably some old, old heads out there who are like, Oh, countdown to Little Raven somehow equating this with quantum physics. Five, four, three, two, one. But the whole thing of things exist and they don't at the same time, which is not my words, that's the words of the quantum physicists. On the subatomic level, Newtonian physics breaks down completely. And it is a world of magic and mystery and we don't understand and that's a fact and there will be people who will talk to you about quantum computing and I'm sure these computers are doing amazing things and I don't pretend to understand but I 
feel. I, I'm tempted to say I guarantee, but I know so little about quantum computing that I need to have some humility here. So I feel as though the quantum computers are not going to be any more helpful in explaining to us the mystery of quantum physics, the mystery of the subatomic level, the mystery of what holds this thing together. And they may be able to give us a lot of data on it, and they may be able to predict behavior to an extent. But if my understanding is correct about the uncertainty aspect of quantum physics, I don't know if they will ever be able to predict with absolute certainty um, what will happen on the quantum level. Anyways, this is all to say <laughs> that when a spirit departs from this world, you feel it as an absence. And I think that's why it hurts. Something leaves. And maybe it is that thing which tethers the spirit to the earth. That is the thing that disappears. Because the spirit is still there, but it is different. It is still accessible and present, but it is no longer in the world. It is an otherworldly thing, an intangible thing, a mysterious thing. And I am absolutely fascinated with death because I've always been fascinated with the intangible, with the invisible aspect of life. The process of grieving is very personal and small mouth noises are not gonna even try right now with it. I'm just, all I can do is talk about aspects of the process and that's one of those aspects is this absence that you feel in but also this presence that you feel it's a paradox i'm thankful for it i'm thankful for all of the paradoxes and all of the mysteries so i want to segue uh right here to the other notion that popped in my mind and this is for this is like for a very niche listenership out there <laughs> and i think perhaps many listeners of the bmp are adjacent to or actually fit this niche. And it's the folks that actually practice ceremonial magic and are dedicated to it, like for real. And that's, it calls upon the Western and alchemical tradition, but it also calls upon all sorts of other traditions. And for me, ceremonial magic is tethered together with the collective unconscious. There's a lot of power in the collective unconscious, an infinite supply of symbols, and every single symbol can be used for power, can be used for magic, for manifestation, for making dreams manifest. And the god king of Portland Pepper Mills, Jonathan Glowacki, sent me a screenshot of a book he's reading about the Aboriginal dream time. And I'm gonna read a portion of that next and then use that as a launching pad to talk about existence and reality itself as time itself as the unfolding of dreams into reality. But I'm gonna read what he sent me and then use that as a launching pad to continue uh, the soliloquy. All right, much love everybody. There's that airplane overhead. That's how you know it's South Phoenix. <laughs> All right, friends, so I'm back in the studio to finish up this segment, and I'm going to be reading from a book that uh, Portland Pepper Mill God King Jonathan Glowacki sent me a couple uh, screenshots of. 
The book is called Voices of the First Day, Awakening in the Aboriginal Dreamtime, and it's written by a fellow named Robert Lawler. And these are the pages that he sent me. Okay. This story shows some of the fundamental values and sensibilities of Aboriginal Australian culture. The old man touches each stone to see if it contains a potency that has predestined it to become a tool and lifelong companion. In the language of the Walbiri, a major western desert tribe, the word for this innate potential the word for this innate potential of a thing is guruwari, literally translated as totem design. Guruwari refers to the invisible seed or life-creating energy that the creative ancestors deposited in the land and in all forms of nature. The great ancestral beings were vast, unbounded, intangible, vibratory bodies, similar to fields of energy. That's what I'm talking about. Vibratory bodies. They created by drawing vibratory energy out of themselves and stabilizing this energy and by specifying or naming the inner name is the potency of the form or creature. I feel like I fucked up that syntax. Let me try that one more time. They created by drawing vibratory energy out of themselves and stabilizing this energy and by specifying or naming the inner name as the potency of the form or creature. The comparable image is the creation of sounds, words, or songs from the vibration of breath. Aborigines refer to the dreamtime creation as the world being, quote, sung into existence. Human creations also first exist as subjective energetic states of consciousness, dreams, intuition, and thoughts that move like a pendulum toward objectification in the external world. Once consciousness has participated in an external creation or activity, it swings back from an objective reality to a subjective state. This return, which we call memory, forms the residual base of all existence. The dreamtime process of creation resembles the simple act of baking bread. First there is an internal desire, a hunger, a need for a delicious morsel existing in a purely energetic state of mind. The desire comes before the bread, just as the dream of the flint is present in the stone before its emergence in the world. That's a beautiful sentence. Conscious activity then gathers the ingredients in the physical world that correspond to those in the dream. By combining and working the ingredients, the dream of the bread closes itself in body. As the bread is eaten, the dream is devoured, it becomes internal and invisible again. The dream of the bread has been digested into a memory. And then the next page he sent to me. Aborigines believe that ancestral spirits created the earth and humankind in a similar manner, through a sequential swing between an internal dream and a physical objectification. In their view, the ancestor first dreams his objectifications while sleeping in the camp. In effect, he visualizes his travels, the country, the songs, and everything he makes inside his head before they are externalized. Objectifications are conceived as external projections of an interior vision. They come from the inner self of the ancestry into the outer world. Because Indo-European language dictates that we express all our thoughts in past, present, or future tense, we have the notion that time is an abstract backdrop moving in one direction, like the hands of a clock from past to future. 
None of the hundreds of Aboriginal languages contain a word for time, nor do the Aborigines have a concept of time. As with creation, the Aborigines conceive the passage of time and history not as a movement from past to future, but as a passage from a subjective state to an objective expression. The first step in entering into the Aboriginal world is to abandon the conventional abstraction of time and replace it with the movement of consciousness from dream to reality as a model that describes the universal activity of creation. The ritual dances and songs that the Aborigines perform every day celebrate the movement from subjective to objective that created the world. This perception guides every aspect of daily life. Even today, an Aborigine stays awake at night before a hunt, watching his sleeping dogs. And then finally, Portland Peppermill God King sent me this little uh, snippet here. There is a dreamtime story that goes way back. It tells about the wise men or tribal doctors of old. They used to be able to see into their special crystals. They could see pictures of the past, pictures of what is happening far away, right now, and pictures of the future. Some of the future pictures fill the old fellows with dread. They saw a time when the color of the black fellows, like the stones, seems to grow paler and paler until only the white faces of the spirits of the dead could be seen all over Australia. Aborigines associate white skin with the dead as we all turn white as skeletons after death. When the white men first came to Australia, the black fellows thought they were spirits of the dead people coming back to their old country and so they welcomed them. The Dreamtime Law says, the living must make ceremonies and help the spirits of the dead find their way up to the sky where the dead spirits live. The ceremonies failed to carry the white-faced white people to the realm of death, but the white man sure brought the realm of death to earth. Yikes, Jonathan. That's a little dark, but you know, I can't really argue with it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I appreciate him sending me those clips, and I don't have too much to say about it uh, right now other than um, it really resonates with me, and I think it resonates a lot with the, the quantum entanglement idea that time does not move linearly, that everything is entangled, and it also, you know, like the, the cliche, like woo-woo kind of idea, um, what is it called, the... Um, what's it called, that, that manifestation method, that the great secret, something like that, that you, uh, that everything begins as thought and then is manifested into reality. The idea, the hunger creates this idea that I would like bread and then you bake the bread, then you taste the bread and then you digest the bread and then the dream goes back into uh, subjectivity again or it com comes into reality and then back into subjectivity again. That seems to me the cycle of all things. And that's very beautiful, I think, when we consider our own mortality, you know, that we were, uh, we, we didn't exist, you know, then our, our biological parents came together and we were conceived and we come into reality, we live this life for as long as we're, as long as we're here, nothing is guaranteed, and then we pass back into the realm of the invisible again. It's very beautiful and very natural, and um, so I'm going to leave this segment there for now. And uh, much love, everybody. All right, peace.
Alrighty, friends, so the veggies this week are kind of pulling on the thread of the genetic engineering uh, episode I did a couple weeks ago. And specifically this week, we're going to be talking about a couple projects uh, with some unsettling implications, to say the least. The projects I'm referring to are the World Mosquito Program, which is a Bill and Melinda Gates and a Welcome Trust program. I'm going to be playing a brief video of Whitney Webb on James Corbett's show describing the Welcome Trust and their project Welcome Leap and some of the role that they had in the shenanigans of the zoological origins of COVID-19 and some other shit, some of the people involved with that, how closely linked they are with DARPA and the military industrial complex. And so anytime you have DARPA saying that they are funding a project for the greater good, the hair stands up on the back of my neck because they are a military organization. It is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. It is not the rainbows and bubblegum and butterflies uh, advanced research project agency, although I wish we had that. I really do. And if I ran the zoo, we would. But friends, I don't. I live in the industrial district of South Phoenix and I do a podcast instead. So all I can do is raise the alarm bells on this stuff. So anyway, I thought a good, by way of kind of introducing this topic, <laughs> I'm going to be reading you guys an article from the CIA rag Wired, wired.co.uk, this is from the UK, so the MI6 rag, I should say, since this is the UK version of Wired, and uh, this is from uh, April 18 of 2018. The US military is hacking insects with virus DNA, raising fears of dangerous new bioweapons. And since this is wired, they're basically telling us, like, this is happening, so deal with it. The, the, I, I noticed that that's kind of like a, a lot of these articles, like, for example, that one during the genetic engineering episode that I did that was sponsored by Bayer. And they introduce it and they're like, this shit's happening. Uh, embryoids, artificial wombs, the shit's happening. And then they they tr make this kind of like ham ha ham fisted effort to be like fair and balanced they're like this is why we're doing this these are the risks but this is why we're doing it and then they can be like okay so fucking revelation of the method we told you guys the risks and you didn't rise up to stop it so we're not responsible for the karmic <laughs> uh, fallout all right so here we go darpa the research arm of the u.s military friend of the show is embarking on a radical new trial, but researchers warn that the technology could be turned into a biological weapon. Ah, that's... Why would it be turned? Why would DARPA be making a biological weapon? Come on, get out of town. All right, let's see. I'm going to read some or all of this article just by way of introduction to this topic here. Making crops taller, tastier, and more resistant to disease is a tedious process. For thousands of years, the only option farmers had was to pick two plants that showed particularly desirable characteristics and breed them together, hopefully creating offspring that shared those promising traits and avoided undesirable ones. Modern gene-mutating techniques sped up this process. First, research researchers worked out that by bombarding embryonic cells with radiation, they could force mutations in plant genomes, causing desirable traits to occur at random. They could then pull out these mutated cells and use them to generate entirely new plant lines. In 2012, the geneticists Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna found a much more precise way of changing a plant's genome. CRISPR-Cas9, and we talked about CRISPR-Cas9 uh, two weeks ago, is a kind of molecular pair of scissors that can be guided to a precise point in an organism's genome to chop out a troublesome gene or insert a desirable one. 
So skipping ahead a little bit here. The U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, a government agency responsible for developing new technology, usually for use by the military, U usually, 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 99.9% .9 of the time, I guess, that's I guess that means usually, wants to speed up this process. The agency is funding trials that, if they are successful, will mean that insects can be used to deliver genome editing molecules to crops growing in the field. Let's run that back. This is in 2018, four years ago now, more than four and a half years ago now. The agency is funding trials that, if they are successful, will mean that insects can be used to deliver genome editing molecules in crops growing in the field. Insects, folks. The research program, which is already underway in four different trials in the U.S., is now attracting consternation from biologists and ethicists who argue that this new technology poses a biosafety risk and could easily be turned into a new kind of biological weapon. It's all part of a program called Insect Allies. Insect Allies that over four years will provide $47 million or 36 million pounds, although that's probably different now because the pound is in the shitter, uh, in funding to research groups trying to develop a way of using insect-delivered viruses to edit crops in the field. And I want to point out that this, this project, Insect Allies, as I'm going to demonstrate in a second, I'll play you guys a little video from the Max Planck Institute, it's just gone full speed ahead. So all of this like consternation and gnashing of teeth by bioethics, that's just part of the theater. That's part of the theater. The bioethicists walk out, they get strolled out, they're, they're owned by DARPA, and they're like, yeah, you know, this could be a thing, and then it's like, okay, well, we got to talk about it. Meanwhile, the, it just goes full speed ahead, and I, I, I know, I see this kind of uh, paradigm, this te technique, this tactic of pushing technology forward, especially around genetic engineering. I see this over and over again. TED Talks are filled to the brim with these yahoos going out there being like, yeah, you know, this could be misused, but they just go full speed ahead anyway. So... Kind of reminds me of here in the Southwest where like we're running out of water and Lake Mead is, is just dropping precipitously. The intake valves are being exposed to the air. They're having to drill new intake t intake uh, tubes. And but it's like, yeah, we're, we're running out of water, but full speed ahead with the development, the, the capitalist blocks, the fucking fourth industrial revolution, the smart cities, full speed ahead. There's just no that's 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 capitalism for you it's like yeah we can talk about the problems but if there's money to be made it's just going to go full speed ahead regardless so you know all right continuing here this is how this technology would work talking about the insect allies here say you're a farmer who just heard that next month there's going to be a plague of locusts that love munching the particular variety of maize you're growing in your field You've already planted your maize, so there's no time to grab some locust-resistant seeds and plant a new crop. Instead, harvest all the locusts and make a flower out of them and sell it to Chit and Fresh. Wait, no, sorry, that was my editorial, guys. Okay, here we go. Instead, you buy a whole load of aphids that have been infected with a genetically modified virus. Synthetic viruses, folks, that's what Dr. Judy Mikovits is always talking about, synthetic viruses program to insert a locust-resistant gene into maize plants. When those aphids start chomping on your maize plants, they'll transmit that genetically modified virus to the crop. Once inside, the virus will release its gene-editing molecules, and if, if doing some heavy lifting here in this sentence, if everything goes to plan, turn your normal maize plant into a locust-resistant maize plant. So what was a week or so ago a field of ordinary maize plants? So what was a week or so ago a field of ordinary maize plants? Some some sketchy writing here by Wired. Come on, guys. Come on. 
you got enough funding. You can hire me. Fuck, I'll edit your shit. Just pay, pay me enough money, I'll edit some wired. I don't give a fuck. Can become a field of locust-resistant maize plants almost as quickly as you can tug the lid off your box of ap aphids. And if next week the, the weather report comes in and forecasts a drought, then you can reach for your box of aphids infected with a genetically modified virus that carries a drought-resistant gene instead. That's the theory, at least. This, says Guy Reeves, a biologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology, would, would be a radical and worrying leap forward in biotechnology. Quote, they are almost instantaneous and they are extremely flexible, unquote, he says. Even putting the insects to one side for a moment, something he says is, quote, virtually inexplicable from every angle, unquote, Reeves argues that there is real potential that this technology could be abused. Quote, when you look at every single step to make it agricultural rather than a weapon, it's always easier to make it a weapon, he says, unquote. Uh, Reeves and his colleagues set out their concerns surrounding his DARPA pro this DARPA program in an argument published in the academic journal Science. Quote, To break something, to knock something out, is much easier than to gain a function, Reeves said. Oh, here we go, we're, we're here, the gain of function, gain of function being talked about in Wired in 2018, before it busted out into the mainstream after a pangolin fucked a bat. Pangolins fucking bats. And, you know, the Wuhan, it comes out of Wuhan. There's an institute of virology there, but that has nothing to do with anything. It's bats banging pangolins. And all of a sudden, we got a bunch of old people passing on. So there you go. So they don't have to pay the pensions. Okay, anyways. In other words, while the DARPA program is intended to deliver useful plant traits to a target crop, Reeves argues that the same technology could much more easily be used to surreptitiously damage or kill a crop. Imagine you were the despotic leader. Imagine. Imagine we had a despotic leader of a nation state that wanted to damage crop, damage the crops of a far off enemy. You could order the release of leaf hoppers that carry a genetically modified virus that, when transmitted to the plant, knocked out genes that were essential for plant reproduction, making its steeds sterile. Seeds sterile, <laughs> not steeds, seeds. Quote, is only when they planted those seeds next, it's only when they planted those seeds next year that they would see there was a problem, unquote, Reef says. There are also major questions concerning how this technology might actually be usefully deployed in agriculture, although the program does include some safeguards to prevent anything going awry, quote unquote. DARPA is mandating that these trials take place in greenhouses, although this is 2018, so they, they, they've already started with these trials, folks, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. One concern, says Silja Vonecki, a law professor at the University of Freiburg and co-author of the science article, is that it is that the insect allies program as it stands falls into a gray area without plausible evidence that the technology is most useful for peaceful purposes then there is the paper suggests a danger that the program would fall foul of the biological weapons convention more transparent public discussions blah 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 so why not stick with existing gene editing technology the answer Beckstein says is all about efficiency Locust-resistant maize, for example, might grow a little shorter and slower than non-resistant varieties because it devotes some of its energy towards producing proteins that enable it to withstand and ward off bugs. If farmers could use insect-delivered viruses to, quote, switch on resistance in maize plants, it would mean that the plants could be super efficient for most of the time and only give up that efficient edge when they absolutely have to by switching into locust-resistant mode. This sounds like some MI6 fucking... Uh, this sounds like some MI6 spin on this article here of Wired. 
So I'm going to bring this article to a close, and then I'm going to read another one by the Max Planck Institute talking about insect allies, and then I'm going to play a short video for you guys about the insect allies. Hold on to your butts. Genetically modified viruses are normal viruses that have had extra DNA added to them. This allows them to do things they could not have done before. Until today, scientists have not intentionally released genetically modified viruses into the environment, barring several tightly controlled exceptions. The problem with any deliberate release is that, in many cases, it is difficult to control where the viruses will end up. We know of thousands of natural plant viruses, but none are known that can edit a plant's chromosomes. However, man-made viruses can be created to edit chromosomes across species. A new program called Insect Allies aims to use this kind of gene-editing technology to help farmers and communities protect their crops. Until now, this technology has only been used indoors, but the military agency funding this program is interested in releasing it outside. While their idea is not new, it has never been done before. Farmers spend a lot of time worrying about how to protect the health of their crops from hazards. With insect allies, armies of insects would be infected with man-made viruses that are designed to directly target their crops. These viruses would be used to strengthen the plants against a wide selection of hazards. As a result, the main focus of this project is on viral dispersal. The insect allies themselves would only serve as viral vectors. For this plan to succeed, scientists would need to be prepared for anything. When the alarm sounds, they would need to quickly infect insects with the correct virus, transport them to farmers and release them. The insects would then be able to distribute their infections to crops. To be useful in any capacity, all of this would require global infrastructure. It would need warehouses designed to house insects year-round and staff to breed and maintain them. These insects would also require safeguards that would prevent them living and breeding beyond their one-time use. Without these kill switches, there would be a risk of the virus mutating and spreading, as pathogens tend to do. Unfortunately, it is still unclear how the spread of a genetically modified virus would be controlled. Should we be worried? The designers of the Insect Allies program claim that they can greatly assist farmers in protecting their crops, much to everyone's benefit. However, this kind of technology can easily be used to sabotage and control access to resources on a local or global scale. Right now, scientists are hard at work to safely develop insect allies. They are using multitudes of kill switches to prevent unintended outbreaks. But is this enough? With the appropriate resources, it would be easy for anyone to turn off these safeguards and cause a deliberate outbreak. This would create a new and highly targetable form of biological weapon, one that is undetectable and untraceable. It can be hard to predict the future. Today's technologies can become tomorrow's weapons. So, knowing all of this, do we really want to go viral? I'm feeling the
So this brings us to the World Mosquito Program, which is a joint initiative from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. And this is an article saying how uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust have awarded 50 million Australian dollars to the World Mosquito Program over three years, bringing their total contribution to 185 million Australian dollars since 2010. The additional funding will build on the World Mosquito Program's, quote, success, unquote, <laughs> in reducing the global threat of mosquito-borne diseases and fund studies to measure the efficacy of our Wolbachia method, laying the foundation for expansion in developing countries where diseases like dengue, Zika, chikungunya, and yellow fever are a severe health burden. Witnessing the development of the Wolbachia approach from proof of concept to initial studies to the return of definitive epi epidemiological data is deeply gratifying, says Gates Foundation Deputy Director. So how it works. The Wolbachia method. How mosquitoes spread disease. Mosquitoes pick up viruses by biting infected people. When they bite again, they can transmit the virus to the next person. This is how mosquito-borne diseases spread. Mosquitoes do not naturally carry viruses, they can only get them from infected people. Since only female mosquitoes bite humans, only female mosquitoes can transmit viruses. So the Aedes aegypti mosquito is the main transmitter of dengue, zika, chikungunya, and yellow fever viruses. Aedes aegypti mosquitoes first spread outside Africa during the slave trade between the 15th and 19th centuries. They also spread through trade with Asia during the 18th and 19th centuries, and then again following troop movements in World War II. And then here's the pitch where they say it's all about preventing dengue. They talk about how dengue is increasing, but I want to just point out that there are natural remedies for dengue. And I know that dengue fever is a really s serious thing, and um, you know I have some friends who have had dengue fever, and I'm not saying it's not super serious, but I just want to read some statistics about dengue so that we can kind of put this in perspective. So this is from the CDC website and it talks about the dengue vaccine and in the CDC, the fringe outlet, the cdc.gov, it says that if the person getting the vaccine is pregnant or breastfeeding, they should discuss benefits and potential risks of dengue vaccination. Um, people with minor illnesses, blah, blah, blah. Risks of a vaccine reaction. Soreness, redness, or swelling where the shot is given. Tiredness or weakness. Fever, headache, fatigue, or muscle pain can happen after dengue vaccination. And then they throw this in. If a person who has never had dengue in the past gets a dengue vaccine, they are at an increased risk of severe disease if they become infected with dengue in the future. And that's because of antibody-dependent enhancement. So, you know, when we talk about dengue, also it's there are natural remedies for dengue. So that's why I want to read you guys uh, next. And we just have to ask ourselves if fucking with the, uh, the bacteria in mosquitoes and spreading like genetically modified mosquitoes is really the best way to combat this. So from organicfacts.net, prevention of dengue fever. The most effective form of treatment is actually prevention, but fending off annoying mosquitoes can be very difficult. The most effective preventative strategies are standing water, removing or eliminating standing stagnant water, as that is where mosquitoes reproduce. Mosquito repellent, if you are in a heavily wooded or tropical area, apply mosquito repellent to any exposed skin in your clothes. Enclose and cover, cover all your skin and ensure that the place you sleep is in fully enclosed. 
uh, that you sleep in is fully enclosed, including tears and any mosquito netting that you may put in place to protect yourself. So home remedies for dengue fever. Papaya leaves. Papaya leaves are widely known as being a natural cure for dengue fever. The complex mix of nutrients and an organic compound called papain, also known as papaya proteinase, found in raw papayas can cause a rise in your platelet count. The high levels of vitamin C can also help to stimulate the immune system and the antioxidants help to reduce oxidative stress and eliminate excess toxins in the blood. The leaves can be crushed and then strained with a cloth to drink the pure juice. Preparations of the raw fruit, ripe fruit slices can also be had. Barley grass has the unique ability to significantly increase the body's blood platelet count by stimulating the production of more blood cells. Um, golden seal. Although many herbal or natural remedies aren't directly approved or proven through research, and that's because of the Rockefeller Foundation war on natural remedies in the 20s, homeopathic physicians have praised golden seal for its ability to clear up the symptoms of dengue fever very quickly and eliminate the virus from the body. Golden seal not only helps to ease fevers, chills, headaches, nausea, and vomiting, but its natural antiviral capacity can essentially cure dengue fever in a matter of days. Then it talks about the importance of uh, hydration, basic neem leaves. So neem I used to use a lot in the Big Island of Hawaii because there's every single bug known to man there and they're con you're constantly waking up with weird new bug bites and I used to use neem oil which is really intense. It smells like garlic so it's not my favorite thing but it really does work a lot at uh, treating insect bites and also preventing insect bites. So neem leaves are commonly prescribed for a variety of ailments and dengue fever is no exception. Steeping neem leaves and then drinking the subsequent brew has been shown to increase both blood platelet count and white blood cell count, two of the most dangerous side effects of the virus. Properly brewed neem leaves can improve the immune system and return your strength much, fast, much faster than any other home remedies. Orange juice is another one. Fenugreek. I was talking to you guys about fenugreek in that soup episode a few episodes ago. Fenugreek leaves and seeds are known to reduce fever and act as a slight sedative to ease pain and promote more restful sleep for patients. Holy basil, you know I love me some Tulsi. So holy basil is not only a sacred plant in India, but is also very useful in keeping dengue away. Moreover, it is easily accessible. Holy basil leaves, when washed, clean, and chewed raw, can work to alleviate the symptoms of dengue. You can also drink the juice of these leaves. So dengue is, it's very, serious fever i'm not saying it's not and but when you get vaccinated for dengue you're at risk of a more severe when you get exposed to the wild virus you're at risk of a more severe dengue reaction that's antibody dependent enhancement then there's these natural remedies for dengue and dengue has a very low fatality rate of one one percent fatality rate so you have a 99 percent chance if especially if your immune system is healthy your adaptive immune system is in top working order you give your body everything it needs you have a very, very, very good chance of defeating dengue. And then you will have your own antibodies for dengue, which won't cause antibody-dependent enhancement. Then the next time you have the wild virus, because our immune systems keep evolving after the virus, after the pathogen has been defeated, the immune system continues to evolve and get better at combating that particular pathogen. That's why natural immunity is better than artificial immunity, otherwise known as the jab. And um, you know, I'm not saying that the jab is not a good idea for certain people in certain subgroups, but it's certainly not a panacea. And when you get a vaccine for, for dengue, you're actually susceptible for antibody-dependent enhancement and having a much worse reaction to the dengue when you're exposed to the wild virus. So all this notion that we have to start fucking with the genetics of mosquitoes and this Wolbachia method, which I'm gonna uh, play you guys a video of right now, um, 
it's going to be obvious to you how this could possibly go south. I mean, they are introducing this bacteria into these mosquitoes and it fucks with their reproductive system. And oh, and then this was the other thing. I'm going to take a little break now, but then I wanted to read you guys this crazy fucking article. And this I had to find on the Wayback Machine because it's been almost scrubbed from the internet entirely and it's called Risks of Wolbachia Mosquito Control. So let me get a sip of water real quick and then I will read you guys this uh, fucking shit because this is crazy. All right, so again, I found this on goodolarchive.org, which I'm leaning on more and more in my research because when something gets scrubbed from the internet, you can still find it on archive.org, thank God. And this comes from Science Magazine, so this is not some crazy fringe but it's an inconvenient article. And so the inconvenient articles, especially when it runs afoul of Gates uh, Foundation initiatives, they get scrubbed the fuck out of the internet. So if you were to go into Google right now and you search risks of Wolbachia mosquito control, you're gonna get 45 articles saying that there's no, no real risk and it's all good and this is purely positive and we're just gonna fuck with the genetic information of mosquitoes and Aegis aegypti and all this bullshit. But here this article was written in Science Magazine, and I have to fucking scoop it up from archive.org. And it's written um, March 18, 2016, by Elgian Lucio Silvia Loretta and Gabriel Luce Walau. Um, and I think they're from... they're Brazilian. And yes, they're from Brazil, and of course that's where the shit is being manipulated. That's one of the countries, one of the many countries in the Global South, where they're introducing, they're injecting Wolbachia into these mosquitoes and then releasing them en masse into these environments, complex Amazon jungle environments. Who the fuck knows? It just seems, it, it seems to me so obviously risky. Anyways, I'm going to stop talking and read this article now. I just kind of wanted to point that out about how you really have to like, you really have to be mindful of the censorship going on and how the internet gets scrubbed of things and I just really recommend utilizing archive.org in your research. Okay. Science.org, March 18, 2016. Risks of Wolbachia Mosquito Control. Controlling insect crop pests and disease vector populations is a huge challenge. A new control strategy involves releasing insects that have been deliberately infected by Wolbachia, a bacterium that induces modifications in host reproductive biology, such as male feminization when a male develops as a female, cytoplasmic incompatibility, the ability pr to produce offspring, and reduced insect lifetime. So this Wolbachia bacteria, that it's like, oh yeah, just putting this bacterium in, in a mosquito is no big deal. It induces modifications in host reproductive biology, such as male feminization, when a male develops as a female, cytoplasmic incompatibility, the inability to produce offspring, and reduced insect lifetimes. So you don't think that'll have effect on an ecosystem if you're reducing insects' lifetimes and mass. Caged and open field experiments with infected mosquitoes are in progress. The Eliminate Dengue Project has released infected mosquitoes in Australia, Vietnam, and Brazil. As of 2016, they had now they've released them in many more countries, especially in South America, and obtained promising results showing that the use of Wolbachia strain is able to invade the Aegis aegypti population and block dengue transmission. Such results are very exciting considering the number of people affected by malaria and arboviruses worldwide every year. However, Few have focused on the probability of Wolbachia strains being transferred to other insects and the potential environmental and economic impacts of this host shift. 
Wolbachia strains are capable of transferring horizontally among distantly related arthropods in a short evolutionary time. Moreover, some parasites are able to carry Wolbachia strains to other species. The benefits of Wolbachia and the risks of host shift must be weighed against the benefits and risks of other mosquito control strategies, such as chemical and bacterial pesticides. And just really quick, why, why are they so interested in fucking with the genetic information of insects in light of DARPA's obsession with the insect allies and in light of this idea of self-spreading genetic therapies through insects and self-spreading vaccines through insects and how that could so easily be weaponized, this is not just a purely philanthropic thing and that's what drives me nuts. You talk to people, normies, about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it's like, yeah, they do a lot of good stuff. It's like, well, on paper, they appear to be doing some good stuff. But when you really dig into it, you find out about the infertility they're causing throughout Africa. You find out about all the connections with the Department of Defense. And it's like, what are the ulterior motives or the dual use, the quote, dual use of these things? So this Wolbachia experiment is, it's not, it, it, it's under the guise of, oh, we're going to be preventing dengue, even though dengue is, is semi-preventable disease only 1% fatality rate. If your adaptive immune system is in perfect health, it's gonna be less than 1% even. And there's also some really effective natural remedies for dengue. And when you vaccinate for dengue, you make yourself more susceptible to severe dengue, like really bad dengue sickness when you get exposed. I know I'm kind of repeating myself here, but I just really wanna drill these points home that it's important to look below the surface on this stuff. So this is uh, science.org saying the benefits of Wolbachia and risks of host shift must be weighed against the benefits and risks of other mosquito control strategies such as chemical and bacterial pesticides. Pesticides also have environmental costs. They affect non-target organisms and can lead to the development of resistant populations of insects. Unlike the effects of Wolbachia, the consequences of pesticide use are well known and are regulated in several countries. Although mosquitoes deliberately infected with Wolbachia could reduce the need for insecticide use, the consequences of Wolbachia host shift to native species are, for now, unpredictable. Arthropods present complex and poorly understood ecological relationships, and alterations in reproductive parameters of non-target species can generate ecological disturbances. That's their sciencey muckety-muck way of saying that it fucks shit up in the ecosystem. <laughs> The Cartagena Protocol, a United Nations safety regulation for transfer, handling, and use of genetically modified organisms, signed by 170 countries, is not applicable to Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes because the bacteria are considered non-transgenic. Therefore, the release of insects hosting Wolbachia was not subject to these regulations. In countries where Wolbachia release was allowed, veterinary, agricultural, and health legislation were used to evaluate its environmental risks. As far as we are aware, no country has regulations specifically pertaining to Wolbachia-infected insect release or mitigation strategies to deal with unexpected results. Even if a country enacts such legislation, it would not extend to other countries, whereas Wolbachia-infected insects, at least in theory, can easily cross political borders. The release of insects hosting Wolbachia strains should be more carefully considered and further studies of the potential impact of these bacteria on biodiversity should be undertaken before this strategy can be widely used. So wise words from science.org, of course, completely ignored because DARPA, Gates Foundation, do whatever the fuck they want to. Uh, but on the BMP, I point this stuff out. 
and now I'm gonna uh, play you guys the video of and this is the, the this is like a, a biased video because it's by the mosquito world mosquito program but it explains exactly how this Wolbachia method works and you will see how this could possibly <laughs> run afoul of the natural ecosystem so here we go um, here's that video for you guys known as Aedes aegypti originated in Africa. Over the last 400 years, it has spread throughout all tropical regions of the world, transmitting viruses like dengue, Zika, chikungunya and yellow fever. Today, this mosquito puts more than half the world's population at risk of dengue alone. But we made a breakthrough that changed everything. We found a way to prevent Aedes aegypti from transmitting dengue and other mosquito-borne diseases. Our method uses safe and naturally occurring bacteria called Wolbachia that live inside insect cells and are passed from one generation to the next through the insect eggs. Here's how it works. Wolbachia are found naturally in an estimated 50% of all the different species of insects. Insects that include fruit flies, moths, dragonflies and butterflies. The secret to the success of Wolbachia is how it manipulates the reproduction of the insects it lives in to give itself an advantage. It works like this. If a male insect has Wolbachia and mates with a female that doesn't, then the eggs she lays won't hatch. If the female has Wolbachia and the male doesn't, she would lay her normal number of eggs. They would all hatch and all offspring will carry Wolbachia. When two insects that both carry Wolbachia mate, the eggs will hatch and all offspring will carry Wolbachia. Over a few generations, the number of individuals carrying Wolbachia increases rapidly until nearly all the insects within a population have the bacteria. We wanted to see if we could use Wolbachia as a way to stop dengue transmission. To do this, we would first have to move Wolbachia into the mosquito so that it would grow and be passed between generations. Using microscopic needles, we took Wolbachia from the fruit fly and injected it directly into young Aedes aegypti eggs. It took us thousands and thousands of attempts, but finally, we were successful. And once the mosquitoes carried Wolbachia, they naturally passed it on to their offspring without the need for further injections of Wolbachia. We then took the mosquitoes that contained Wolbachia and infected them with dengue and found something really exciting. The virus didn't grow well in the mosquito and if it can't grow, it can't be transmitted between people. Our next step was to test the approach in communities where dengue had been a problem for years. Wolbachia mosquitoes were released once a week for 10 to 20 weeks and within a few months, close to 100% of the mosquitoes had Wolbachia. 
Years later, they still do. The results are clear. Dengue cases have dramatically decreased in communities where Wolbachia mosquitoes were released. It is our hope that with continued success, the Wolbachia control method will protect the health of the nearly 4 billion people globally who live with the risk of dengue and other mosquito-borne diseases every day. It's just a crazy story. I didn't know all of the details of that, though. And it's just, it gets crazier the more you know. And here she ends up at Welcome Leap, um, developing, again, uh, it's almost as if, you know, the World Economic Forum stakeholder capitalism, uh, public-private partnership ideal is at play here. We have the best of all worlds, oh, the yeah. philanthropic world, the, the corporate for-profit world, and the public world is ne nexusing in here with these... What I mean, what is someone like a Dugan or a Gabriel? They they are government employees. They are for profit. They're at these philanthropic institutions. They're inter interfacing with all these other people at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and everywhere else. It is just a group, a group of people who are in public or private business as the need arises for their cover for the next stage of an agenda that is clearly unfolding here. What's your take on? Well, what Welcome Leap represents in terms of that nexus of philanthropic slash profit slash public enterprises? Um, I think what Welcome Leap is, is a way to supercharge and rapidly advance um, this type of technology that uh, the ruling class that is behind this agenda feels like it needs to develop sooner rather than later in order to succeed in accomplishing what they want to accomplish before 2030, which is a year that comes up again and again, including in Welcome Leap, uh, but also in various other uh, related agendas and policy documents focusing on that year specifically. And of course, Welcome Leaf, created in 2012, aims to complete all of its projects uh, by 2030. Uh, they make that quite quite explicit. So I think um, by combining, uh, by having it led by someone like uh, Regina Dugan and Ken Gabriel, who really more than anyone else um, embody the revolving uh, door between the military industrial complex and Silicon Valley, which has become much more um, overt over time. You have those connections, you have uh, the Welcome Trust and someone, uh, specifically Jeremy Farrar at the Welcome Trust, who has been intimately involved with a lot of uh, the crafting of, of the uh, narrative uh, for COVID-19, particularly the zoonotic origin narrative with uh, uh, people like Peter Daszak and and Anthony Fauci actually appearing uh, as one of the most heavily redacted individuals in the recently released Fauci emails, uh, ostensibly the head of this charitable trust um, being intimately um, involved in that is quite significant. And then also there is another individual that is quite important to point out who is Jay Flatley, uh, the longtime head of Illumina, whose company um, that he uh, still has a lot of influence over as their um, 
the chairman of the board of directors completely dominates uh, genetic testing and genome sequencing. Uh, most companies that you may have heard of that offer genetic sequencing like 23andMe or the recently acquired by Blackstone Capital, Ancestry.com, uh, rely on machines produced by uh, Illumina, um, as do you know pretty much all of these uh, medical research things uh, or institutions that are sequencing the new COVID variants and, and doing all of this genomic uh, study on, on people uh, from their COVID-19 test results, among other things. This is all being done by Illumina, which um, oddly enough, uh, <laughs> this year represents the conclusion of their aggressive five-year plan uh, launched in 2016 to make uh, gene uh, testing uh, the new norm in medicine uh, with the ultimate goal of having all individuals genetically tested from birth to grave, not just for health purposes, but also useful commercial purposes, whatever that may be. Um, so. You know, these are some very powerful individuals. To me, it really looks like these individuals have come together uh, because they know that time is of the essence in advancing this agenda. If they wait too long, people will wake up uh, to to the agenda. They can only uh, use, you know, uh, pandemics and lockdowns and all of these strategies we've seen implemented in the past year for so long um, before people are like, well, how does that relate to all this transhumanist tech? And why do you want me to wear this? And you know all of all of those things. Uh, the longer that takes to implement, the 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 riskier it is for them. I would argue. So I think Welcome Leap is a way to um, to supercharge this um, by combining some of the most powerful people in various industries and in various worlds. Whether it's you know Silicon Valley, uh, DARPA, neurotech research, and the Welcome uh, Trust dominance of of medical research. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty significant organization that deserves. Um, deserves considerable attention i would i would argue yeah why I wrote well, this piece. <laughs> demonstrably so and uh and and you're very right to point out the timeline of this because there are so many different threads of this agenda that all have lined up around this period in particular things that started ostensibly long before anyone thought of covid or coronavirus but they all started to converge around this time frame um including welcome leap which as you pointed out was first proposed back in 2018 was it and uh, Harpa, which has been on the the uh, the blocks for a while and is now finally getting uh, kickstarted, and various other parts of this agenda, the EU vaccine passport agenda that's been again planned for years now. Uh, again, all converging on this time frame, and as you say, uh, that magical 2030 year, we see it again and again and again. So it's clearly there is some sort of rush to a finish line going on at this point. Do, 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 ah. Tell me how much you missed me When the last time I saw you You wouldn't even kiss me That rich guy you've been seeing Must have put you down So welcome back baby to the post side of town To him you were nothing But a little plaything 
not much more than an overnight fling. To me, you were the greatest thing this boy had ever found. And girl, it's hard to find nice things. Hey friends, please excuse the background AC noise right now, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm including a segment here of a recent Barbarian Yak Fest with the inimitable Dr. Sylvie Salinger. And in uh, this Yak Fest segment, we dig into a nuanced discussion of climate change. And we discuss the various agendas behind the climate action grift. And that is saying that most of us, most people who have like a soul, want to live on a clean planet and a healthy planet and care about animals and care about the environment, myself included. I have a great love of the earth and a great love of biodiversity and it breaks, breaks my heart the pollution and deforestation and habitat destruction breaks my heart. Unfortunately though, this impulse to love and protect our spaceship earth is being leveraged and weaponized against us by predator billionaire oligarchs who want to ride the big green momentum into record profits, consolidation of power, and a surveillance panopticon centered on a carbon-based social credit score for individual citizens. So forget multinational corporations, militaries, and states. They get to use all the carbon they want, but you, according to Mayor Pete, have to pay a tax to drive to work. And then we end the conversation by uh, discussing innovative ways where we can bring our self into the equation in terms of like not just uh, shedding off any responsibility whatsoever. I think that in my humble opinion, people should start thinking about ways of becoming more minimalistic. I'm not talking about suffering. I'm not talking about going cold in the winter. I'm not talking about not having AC during the summer. I'm not talking about not having enough to eat. We talk about things like fashion and how and also like uh, planned obsolescence in in um, devices and how these things feed this unnecessarily wasteful consumerism that le- that that leads to a lot of the pollution issues microplastic issues and all that kind of stuff so we try to end on like a solution oriented conversation about how we can work on repurposing resisting fads and just being i guess you would say more well-rounded human beings um, so here you go, a uh, recent Yak Fest with the great Dr. Sylvie Salinger coming up right here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Yak Fest. We got cut off right there, right as we were talking about the implications of the Fed shutting down the Amish farmers and the nice Canadian couple sharing vegetables. And this is uh, not, these aren't isolated incidents. This is all part of an agenda moving forward. Look into the UN Sustainable Development Goals for 2030 and the, uh, what are they called? The ESGs the environmental, social, and governmental regulations being pushed by Larry Fink. So anything Larry Fink touches, automatically, you, you want to... That, that Larry Fink is not out to help you, and he's not trying to save the planet. So that should be such a red flag. If Larry Fink is running around talking about how we need to put these all these regulations in place to save the planet, something is amiss. And you should be angry. If you're actually an environmentalist, you should be pissed because these people are trying to deceive you and they're trying to dangle red herrings in front of your face to waste all of our energy so that we don't actually take measures to combat electronic waste, pollution, glyphosate, these things that are actually killing people right now as we speak, not models in the future predicting things like, no, the microplastics are swimming through our bloods as we speak. Like this is a problem we need to address now, yesterday, 10 years ago. Yeah, so, the toxins everywhere. 
is nuts. So this segment, Dr. Sylvia and I are going to have, we're going to have that nuanced conversation we promised about climate change. And I just really, I'm asking everyone in professional mediation, when you sit down at the negotiation table, you all have to agree to approach the negotiations in good faith. So I'm asking listeners out there, if you're on board with this, if this is brand new to you, if you start to have really intense emotions come up, all I ask is for good faith. We both have very open minds. You can email you can email me, barbarian.noetics at gmail.com with feedback, suggestions, but we need to expand this conversation and we need to talk about some of the ways in which this agenda has been hijacked and being weaponized against us. So right. I'm going to play this video right now. This is the former co-founder of, or he is the co-founder of Greenpeace, and he is the former president of Greenpeace Canada. All right. And so I'm just going to go ahead and play this video for everyone, and then we're going to discuss to this gentleman people don't understand how how short a time it takes for you not to have any food before you disappear from this life because nobody's experienced it much in recent years but we're now facing a situation where a huge number of very powerful organizations and elites at an international and at national levels are calling for policies that are basically a suicide pact basically a, a death wish of some sort. And it's true, they might not want to say it out loud, but there's a lot of people who think there's too many people. Who are you referring to? Are you talking about the World Economic Forum? Uh, who are you referring to? Well, let's start there, yes. Okay. Uh, most so you probably have some choice words for Klaus Schwab, I assume? Yeah, the guy who said we'll own nothing and be happy. It's a sad situation that we have come to. I didn't realize it could possibly ever get this serious as I've gone through like 45, 50 years of evolution with this train of thought. And when climate change first came up as an issue, uh, I realized that we were being duped and it was all about money. 80% of all the science research in the United States is in universities. They have basically become money milling machines getting government grants to tell the politicians what they want. Mm -hmm. What the politicians want is stories that make people afraid. So you're, you're driving down the freeway in your SUV, you're afraid you're killing your grandchildren. That makes you feel guilty. That makes you open your wallet and send a big check to Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. That the politician then exaggerates that in the, in the public the media exaggerates it, the activists exaggerate it, and the scientists are the, are the silent part of it in a way because nobody sees the money going from the politicians to the scientists. It goes through bureaucrats at state, city, national, international levels. And that money is meant to create narratives that will scare people and yes. that make mm -hmm. them easier to control. Boom. Wow. So, I mean, Bam, that's I, I saw that and I immediately thought of you, Dr. Sylvie. And I was like, I have to show Dr. Sylvie that video. Yes. And uh just really quick to pre-bunk, because there's a whole new there's a whole new thing now with the disinformation campaign. They're they're gonna start like pre-bunking for the midterms, like oh. are like guessing what people are gonna say and then trying. Anyways, I, I did a quick search just to make sure this guy was actually the co-founder of Greenpeace. And Greenpeace put out this like statement being like, This guy is not uh they say that he's not a representative of Greenpeace, and that's true. He no longer is a representative of Greenpeace, but he used to be the president of Greenpeace Canada and he's the co-founder of Greenpeace. Can't argue 
with you can you can have a but no one wants to engage this fellow in a nuanced discussion about this about the ways in which the agenda is being hijacked you know what i mean we're not saying that th this is not like a major issue i am i have a very open mind about the whole carbon thing and my mind is evolving on the whole carbon thing i don't know if we can get into that for today but just like the pollutants like i keep saying over and over again the pollutants in our water the pollutants in our air the chemicals that they're spraying from planes which they are spraying from planes it's not a conspiracy theory it's a it's an actual thing that's happening dr sylvie's always sending me articles about geoengineering sending silver iodide rods into clouds to uh create more rainfall and shit like that and like the more that we start like harping on, you need your smartwatch with your lithium battery so you can uh, count your carbon output throughout the day so that some algorithm can uh, process the information and then dictate your social credit score based on how much carbon you use that day. So whether like how many miles you can take on on the uh, electric bus or whatever dic is dictated on like how much meat you had that week and shit like that. Like this is not the way. Uh, I've talked for long enough, Dr. Sylvia, I'm gonna let you... Uh, freestyle. Wow. I really like that. And it's just, it's so, what is the word? It's a, I have a better word for manipulative, but it's just manipulative, this pre-bunking stuff because oh my God. someone who doesn't have a lot of time to look into something or who just doesn't, isn't that curious or just doesn't want to look into something further, just wants to hear candy that will like make their brain feel better or just things that, you know, reify whatever, preconceptions they have they'll see oh okay the pre-bunk says it's not a representative greenpeace so then they'll just automatically go yep whatever that guy said is bs and just you know whatever throw that away mm -hmm. um but the truth is that that guy was a co-founder of greenpeace and was the head of greenpeace right he just they so they're just very they're 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 lying by omission in a way by saying he's just not the representative okay he's not the current representative and he doesn't represent their interests now whatever their interests are now, which their interests have evolved. Right. 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 It's like, it's very, it, that is just so manipulative right there. Right. Cause like the average, like whatever the average person is like, let's just say that the person that's not going to look into it a lot and it's just going to read and just assumes that, you know, the, the pre bunkers are operating from a good place. is going to yeah. be like, Oh yeah, that guy's FOS, you know? Right. But, but he's not. So it's just like, that's the stuff that's really bothersome. Um, I hate all of the fact checks, fact checking sites and all that stuff now. It's just really bothersome. Um, Absolutely. And like, if you want to know what the legacy media is, is focusing on right now, they're focusing on the Trump raid, Trump derangement syndrome, um, Liz Cheney, Ryan, <laughs> yeah. and um it's exhausting isn't it just like these yeah. these tired fucking narratives and it, it's just like look over here look over here look over there look over there just don't look over there though don't look like, at what the central threat for like two days and then that went away how, isn't it interesting how we're not hearing anything about the ukraine russia conflict anymore yeah um, because russia's mopping up and so it's embarrassing for them so they just they just don't talk about it other than to say like putin is satan incarnate Putin is Satan incarnate and Putin's price hike. But it's like, right. yeah. All right. And then There's... just, and like, like some real double think where they're saying that inflation wasn't happening and that redefining recession 
and say, and like everyone can see that inflation's there, but it's like, it's like this double thing. It's really like 1984, a brave new world. Like there is no inflation, just repeat the lie long enough. You'll believe it or inflation is good for you. I mean, that is <laughs> right. really happening. Inflation now. causes heart attacks, Sylvie. Didn't you know that? That's why everyone keeps on having a sudden adult death syndrome. It's, it's the inflation and Putin. Yeah. Putin and the inflation. <laughs> I can't yeah. even with any of the legacy media. Like right now they're like, I've looked at local media a lot too for the cities and a lot of it is focusing on two things still stoking fear about COVID and because they're gearing up to release another round of boosters that, that are for a specific variant or something. So they're trying to convince everyone to take more boosters. So yeah. that's, why that's back in the news and then monkey pox. So these are the things that the legacy medias are it's focusing on right now. Yeah. And yeah, like the rhino stuff. And then, I mean, I unfortunately had a social media connection who posted a picture of a sign that says leaving Wyoming. And they said, and I'm not going to give, I'm going to keep them completely anonymous. Um, and they said, yeah, I've never visited this state. I've never been to this state, but like, I would want to leave Wyoming too. It seems like a like a city full of like crappy, like or not city, sorry, a state full of like shitty people just because Liz Cheney's from there and because the um the they didn't they elected the Trump back candidate and not Liz Cheney. And this is why this person is just saying this whole this whole state is shit. And I yeah. see, I can't believe that this these highly educated older individuals who've had a lot of life experience are just saying like, I've never been to this state, but this whole state is shit because the people of Wyoming elected a Trump back candidate. It's just, I seriously can't wrap my mind about it. Wyoming is one of my favorite States because it's the least populated state in the nation. Not like it has the smallest population, but per capita, it's the least populated state. So for the amount of, so it's really cool because the majority of the land is like preserved basically and it's not like developed so that's the cool thing about wyoming also 96 percent of yellowstone is is in wyoming and all these other national like sites and park sites so it's it's a super cool state so it is one of my favorite states so then just to be like this state sucks and all the people and it's it's like why don't you just freaking talk to them why don't you go to the state yourself like yeah it bothers me that it, I just, I can't, I'm just bothered by this whole, like people care so much about the clown show of the politicians that they would like never talk to people from this state or think that they're all a bunch of crazed lunatics. That's going to like come after them with like guns, like these like tropes, like you're, so you're like, you're a boomer. This person was a, is a boomer. You have a lot of life experience. This person's traveled internationally and they, have an academic degree and they've taught at academic institutions and they're saying this stuff. And it's just like, I'm just so disheartened by what my connection, my social media connections, these. It's uh, it's in, if I could just interject really quick, it's interesting how you were saying that like highly educated people fall prey to the brainwashing. And I think that that is not a coincidence. I think that our education system is designed to kind of train people to trust certain channels of information and mm-hmm. you know whatever is like the consensus uh basically the consensus like just dis- 
I don't know, established science, established facts, then these sources are to be trusted wholeheartedly. And that's actually not true education. That's actually a form of brainwashing. But um, right. I do want to, I want to get back to climate Sorry, change. Before, tangent, but it just yeah. like, I'm just so disheartened that people can't think outside the box. So you're going to just like say that all of the people of Wyoming are like this, and then just like toss an entire state that's full of mag like beauty and magnificence because of and good people as well. Yeah. Just because of just because they didn't elect Liz Cheney. Like I'm just well, and, yeah, sorry. like <laughs> as we move forward, like the whole uh organic ranching and all that kind of stuff and people like that actually still have land and raise livestock mm -hmm. and, and that's like Wyoming is that's like one of our prime examples of that of like a, a state that is still like mostly open and fertile land and people growing food and stuff like that and this right. this should be like an this should be something that we're emulating at the very least uh a type of ideology that we have discourse with and that we learn from and that we talk about but it goes immediately it's like feast or famine black or white it's like oh yeah liz cheney uh, has something to do with wyoming so fuck the whole state of wyoming and it's 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 childlike and it's uh really damaging so it actually does relate to what we're talking about dr sylvie in terms of like people getting sidetracked about the climate change situation right, exactly and i don't think there's nearly enough talk about the what it would require so there's this what is being pushed by big green is that basically the answer is electric cars the answer is electric trucks the answer is windmills the answer is you know and i'm not talking shit. i actually love solar technology i'm a huge solar technology guy i'm not as big of a wind person because i just don't think it's really worth it to be honest with you i'm leaning more into the fact that we need to De develop better ways of dealing with nuclear waste and use more nuclear power. That's personally what I'm because for the amount of power that we need to generate, the nuclear power plant takes up a relatively small amount of space. The major downside is obviously risk of meltdown and the nuclear waste. And that's what I would be focusing a lot of attention on is better ways of processing nuclear waste. Could Is there a microbe, some type, sort of, you know, if we're going to genetically engineer, can we genetically engineer by bacteria that can eat uh, or somehow neutralize radioactive waste? And, um, you know, nuclear power, when there's not a meltdown, is actually one, it's, it's way cleaner than like coal, for example, you know what I mean? But um, I also, I'm, I'm a big solar technology guy. But anyways, Let's say everyone has electric vehicles. Let's say everyone in the United States has electric vehicles and there's electric truck fleets and everything's autom automated and stuff like that. <clears throat> Putting aside the whole fact of like, well, what happened to all the truckers then, the independent contractors that they're trying to squeeze right now with the diesel prices that are still through the roof. But where did they get the rare earth metals and minerals and lithium and everything required for the shell of these vehicles and the com complex converters and all this bullshit where did those minerals come from and what was that extraction process like and you know how much carbon quote unquote carbon did that emit and uh really quick too i'm kind of jumping all over the place but i'm kind of throwing out a bunch of topics and you can take whatever you want and run with it something that's never talked about that drives me nuts is that every time one of these icelandic volcanoes explodes that shoots like as much carbon into the atmosphere as like, I'm pretty sure the entire continent of Asia for like an entire year, if not more than that. Like, oh. the, yeah, it's, it's insane. And yeah, true story. I, I should probably have the statistic more on point, but it's something ridiculous like that. And it's just, not right, and that's something you can't control. 
absolutely not. It's absolutely part of the natural order. It's part of how the earth lives. It's the living earth. You have like the core of the earth, which is molten rock. And then, you know, that's how new land masses are born. And we have had uh, two mass extinction events, you know, at least, but we know that we've had two mass extinction events already on this planet. Uh, both, I believe, were from asteroid impacts. And, you know, it's like, I, I'm a, I always go back to like biodiversity and the beauty of nature. And this is what I like to focus on. I want to preserve the beauty of nature. I want to preserve all those little tree frogs with the different colors, orange and yellow and red little tree frogs running around in Costa Rica. Like that's the type of shit that I think is good to focus on because we can all agree that everyone appreciates biodiversity. And I think we can all agree that you need biodiversity to be healthy, like even in the human body. You need like a, a diverse array of, of fauna of not fauna, um, flora, beneficial flora to help you digest and all that kind of stuff. Systems operate best when they're diverse. And so the pollutants and the because there is a mass extinction happening from, I believe, from habitat loss and pollutants. Yeah, especially in the insect kingdom. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, for sure in the insect kingdom, but I think across the board and there's so many medicines that we, that are out there still in the rainforest that we haven't discovered yet. And there's, I, th I think we haven't even discovered like half of the variety of mushrooms that there exist on the planet. And, you know, these have, don't even get me started on the, the benefits and the possible medicinal uses of all these different mushrooms and stuff like that. So just off the top of your head, Dr. Sylvie, like, what do you think is the best way of moving forward? even from like a conversational or discourse perspective, if we're trying to reach people who are, have their heads completely shut and they think that the Green New Deal and electric cars and Elon Musk is like the only way that we can somehow address climate change, how can we bring up some of these other topics in a way that is like, that gets through, that doesn't immediately turn someone off? It's a big question. Like thinking about systems and like how nothing's a closed system and everything's interrelated. Or definitely bring up e-waste because I think that's something that people don't think about. And I definitely think about, talk about how the electric cars are going to be powered, how all these like charging stations are going to be powered and where that's from. Yes. So I would talk about that. Um, another thing I recently learned is that these wind mills are like, yeah, like those big solar wind. So they're called the windmills. What? the blades there's no way to recycle them or destroy them so they just bury them under the ground so when they do these wind farms they just like destroy like destroy all of the biodiversity there in that region whatever is living there and then they have the windmills then they, then if it one dies or breaks down and they have to replace it they just bury the like it doesn't biodegrade they just bury it underground there are these huge things like if you know the top of it is the size of a semi-truck like wow that part so these are huge wow and um yeah so i think the whole went and then and then also if you think about birds if you're a bird or if you're into birds at all i mean they're horrible for birds in yeah. every single way right they're gonna like mess up the flight patterns and then tons of birds will die and stuff so anyway basically i think the the windmills suck in general i mean that's yeah. a very strong opinion but i think in general they suck and they're not like all of these tertiary effects that's those are, are all important so it's it's like the electric it's like with electric vehicles you're thinking it's free it's like it's not there's there's still energy they're running on electricity and like where's right. that from? so like it's not like this is free it's just like when it's invisible people don't think about it just like emf like 
EMF in our environment everywhere. Like I'm always thinking about that. I mean, do you use wireless earbuds or wireless headphones ever? I do. When you think about that, it's like they're communicating with each other and you're just like pumping like EMF through your ears and your brain. So I stopped using my earbuds or like I, I use them rarely now and I use the wired ones again because yeah, it's like it's just the EMF like that we're bathing in all the time. Like I feel like areas that have a lot of like EMF or EMF technology like where you have a lot of devices like connected at one time I feel like I feel like more anxious in those areas I don't know if that's just me talking myself into that or not but I don't know you're, you're not alone Dr. Sylvie a lot of people report that that um like being in heavy EMF zones or standing under power lines or whatnot that causes anxiety and restlessness and it's not crazy to, to think that because you have all this energy kind of zapping you you're and we're electrical systems our nervous systems are electrical chemical systems so you're like agitating that with all this activity i mean it, it makes sense to me right so like i don't know even like a college campus maybe like that a hospital um a major you know a city metropolitan area anyway um yeah. but what was i gonna say how do you think we can encourage people to like use less stuff without falling into the ESG Larry Fink thing of like owning nothing and be happy? Okay, even better oh, yeah, question. The quality thing, just going back to the old timey thing, of, like the old timey thing of just, you know, quality. Like, do you want quality things? Like all these things that are cheaply made are made of cheap materials that are like basically toxic, right? Like, <laughs> yes. Like I can use this glass or I can get like a plastic glass that's going to leach stuff and like microplastics, this is, but this will last forever and I'm not going to get microplastics from it. So, yeah. and, and, and being okay with having less things, like I don't need a hundred plastic cups. I can have like six nice glass cups or something like that. And, um, just the same thing with like shoes, like, but it's social media is another thing that's making this worse like when i do go on instagram it's just like trying to sell you stuff all the time <laughs> and like you know i get like fat i get like you know stuff that's marketed towards women so it's always just like do this to look better do this to look better do this to look better and it's all just throwaway culture stuff so i mean really just convincing people that like it's better for you for the environment but it's like especially for you just like a selfish level like for you for your body for your psychology to have to not have all these toxins and these like the fast fashion like what is that stuff made out of like i think i think the toxicity comes from our image saturated culture so if you like read up on the um the history of imagery in our culture and just images right because like photographs weren't like we didn't we haven't had photographs for that much of human history and now with the cell phone like the iPhone really, or like the, 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 the smartphone really was a revolution in this way. Now we can have images. We're just flooding ourselves with images all the time. And all of the younger generations that are just on social media all the time, they're just looking at images. It's just images, everything. So it's like, it's just like the appearance is everything. It's not even like it's in it's fake too. It's like, it's basically virtual is the reality, right? Yeah. So um, with that, people are getting sucked into like, Oh, I'm I I don't want to be shown with the same outfit on. 
right? And that feeds fast fashion. So, okay. You can't oh no, we're feeding fast fashion with the Sylvie has to wear a different hat. Okay, I'm, I'm retracting that, Dr. Sylvie. You can wear the same damn hat every episode. I do okay. not want to be contributing to fast fashion here on the Yak Fest. Right. I mean, if I bought it from like a secondhand store, that would be okay. But, right. um, but yeah, like, so it's just like, like I see these people who will be like, oh, they're wearing the same thing. Like, I don't want to wear the same thing when I go out to eat or I go to this, you know, but in the nineties when we didn't have, you know, smartphones and social media, like no one cared. You could wear the same outfit every day and no one would care. Like if you went to events or whatever, anyway, basically the culture is reifying this whole idea that you need to look amazing and have this like curated house and curated you know everything yes and that is feeding into the consumer culture of wastefulness and fast fashion and fast everything and and trends if you're just if you live based on trends you're always buying stuff like trends are basically toxic because it's just like you're buying new stuff it's just convincing you that this is what's cool not what you like but this is what's cool you know like for example i hey. like bell bottoms and players and I don't like mom jeans or whatever the new thing is, or like these, like the, I don't like the baggy jeans. I don't like that. So I'm never gonna buy into that trend. I'm always gonna wear like these flared jeans cause I like them. And like, if they don't sell them, then I'm just not gonna buy new ones and I'll just wear my old ones. So I'm just like, go for what you like. Don't go for like, this is the, this is the trend. So I need to buy this. Cause it's basically just, you're just feeding capitalism. Like you're just feeding the companies. That's all you're feeding You're not. But it's just, it's so insidious, just the advertising, the marketing and the imagery, just focusing on the image. That is basically like their lives is just sharing images. Like, this is sad, but like, if you think about the average teen, like 18 year olds, they're just sharing images all day long. And the images, they want to be unique and different. And so they're just, want so I would say step away from that and like, think about just what you're putting on your body and like the fact that you want things built to last and that's better for you and you'll feel less anxiety stress economic stress too like the stress is people's finances that they feel like they have to invest in all these new things all the time absolutely um, i mean yeah like that's basically what i would say and then also just think about the invisible energy like emf was an example but then also just like the electric vehicles that's not free energy so i would th say think about that and then also just compare what they're telling us to do in the us and the west with what other countries are doing so yeah. if we even make a small dent in our co2 emissions but then you have the biggest super polluters in the planet are other countries like i'll give examples china if china makes no dent in their co2 emissions but we make a little bit of a dent because we changed everyone's lifestyle the average yeah. the proletariat's lifestyle the proletarian lifestyle if we make a, a huge change to that and then it makes a little dent in the carbon emissions well that's that's not going to do anything in the grand scheme of things because this isn't a closed system right and yes. so and like so uh, if I could interject really quick, one of the pillars of the Barbarian Yak Fest is to basically own own the means of algorithmic production. I think that was like the little catchphrase that we came up with, own the means of algorithmic production. So what you're saying when you're talking about resisting trends and going by what you actually resonate with, like on an aesthetic level, what do you actually resonate with? 
and leaning into that. And that is seizing control of the algorithm. You are the algorithm. I, I find myself repeating this over and over to people. You are the algorithm. We, you generate the algorithm, you know, like it's, it's a creative process and you have, it's you and all you have to do is lean in to who you really are and lean into your authenticity, worry less about what other people think and more about what resonates with you. And this is of course, within the rubric of being a kind person, not like just throwing your weight around and do what thou wilt and that like luciferian idea of just like whatever the fuck your little heart desires go for it i'm not talking about that i'm talking about being a kind person staying empathic with your fellow brothers and sisters and resonating with things and leaning into that i like jeans that flare it makes me happy so that's what i'm gonna wear and I'm doing it because I like it and I have one pair of jeans that flares and I'll just wear that pair of jeans every day. Who the fuck cares, you know? Yeah, it's so I basically every day, have, <laughs> when I work from home and I don't have to go outside the house, I wear basically these like um, yoga pants that have a slight flare at the end. I'm not gonna wear low, like, and they, they actually look like if I pair them with a nice sit down, I mean button down, they look, like I can go and like, you know, do something professional in them anyway. They're not like, they're not like uh, leg, nice. leggings or whatever. They're not yeah. like something I work out in. They're like something I wear around, but they're comfortable. It's basically like comfortable professional wear, but it's made out of a comfortable, yeah. It's like, it's basically professional wear, but it's not like these starchy, like, or just like constrictive pants. Anyway, they don't sell these anymore. Okay. Use so, code YAKFEST sellout for 10% discount. I have to go on like Poshmark and which is like a re, like a reselling um, app and, you know, website and purchase these old pairs from like 10 to 15 years ago or something. But I've just been doing that. And now actually I feel like I bought out like the whole Think of them because they get holes in them but i'm basically like all of the pairs that i've been wearing for the past six months have not been new i have bought other people's pre-owned stuff from five to ten years ago and i've been wearing them and they will get holes in them faster so i have to keep buying the used pairs <laughs> but i mean i actually feel good about that because i've really been like recycling those in a way because i haven't purchased new ones at all these are all pre-owned ones from other people so I feel, I feel good about that, but I've just been like, there are all these other like mom jeans and like skinny pants or just like other things that I don't like that don't feel comfortable to me and also don't really look professional at all. And I just don't, in, I just don't invest in those. And so since people don't want these anymore because they're not trendy or in style, then I just purchase people's old ones. And then in that way, I feel like I'm not adding, I'm not like, contributing to fast fashion or so uh, uh i have an idea for a call to action because i really think you're, you're on to something here how about refurbish friday where you make an effort to think about you things in your life that you have or whatever or that are around that you can re repurpose you can you can spruce up and you can refurbish and that even like uh, people can do that with electronic stuff even, you know what I mean? Like, what can you utilize? Maybe you could learn about like how these things operate. My brother-in-law builds up his own computers from scratch and it's like, he just taught himself from a young age and it's 
I rely, our whole family relies on him heavily for that type of stuff. You know, it's such a useful skill to have and it, it gives you more freedom. It absolutely gives you more self-reliance because then you don't have to go crawling to Apple for a brand new device. You can instead attain the part you know you need and fix what you got or upgrade what you have. Um, I'm gonna upgrade my PC soon uh, using the solid state drive. Brother-in-law is gonna help me install it. It's gonna give me more memory so I don't have to buy a new computer. I can just basically upgrade the one I have. And I have another idea. Uh, I, I don't have as flashy of a name. I kind of like Refurbish Friday, but a social media fasting day. And the social media fasting day also entails connecting with others. So like IRL yeah. Wednesday, you know what I mean? IRL Wednesday or something like that, where you lean in, you make a pact with yourself. I am disabling the fucking apps for this day for 24 hours and you do it. And when you do that, you notice you feel lighter. When I disable my apps, I literally feel lighter. You know, like every once in a while, I have a twinge of like, oh, I want to do this or oh, I want to contact that. But it's like, it's chill. I'll do it tomorrow. It's fine. And then you connect more with people than in like the real world. And this, and you know, like the real world is so magical and mysterious. Like we are these chemical electrical bodies moving through space interacting using small mouth noises and like body language and communicating these like really complex ideas to one another. And you're, there's like pheromones and chemical signals and uh, serotonin and dopamine. And like, you know, my, one of my uh, friends at the, where I work, she has a Pomeranian and I always like, I like, I like request. I'm like, bring the Pomeranian every day, please bring the Pomeranian because the Pomeranian like is so full of love and happiness that it gives uh -huh. me like a, IRL dopamine rush like the that's Pomeranian oxytocin. That's real. <laughs> okay oxytocin yes. well, that's one of them that's just one of them but oxytocin is like the one when you're like hugging it also is like released I think when uh mother's breastfeeding but it's like mm. when you're hugging your your pet and they respond like if there's like a dog or a cat or whatever then like that happens or anything like a horse like people love horses. I love horses. I just, that's why I brought that up. But yeah. and when you see this little dog and the dog is so cute and you know, it interacts with you, that oxytocin is like, that's a, the bonding hormone. Yes. And that gets cultivated in real life, you know, for sure. And not in virtual life at all. No, not at all. And we're, we're being ushered by these very dark forces into a reality where we, we confuse in real life with metaverse they're trying to blur the lines more and more the lines are getting more blurred and blurred all the time that's the why i hate augmented reality sorry yeah. to sorry to intervene but like there's all these apps where you like they they want to push ar which is different from vr but it's called augmented reality and that's exactly what you're saying that's blurring the line between in real life and virtual reality is augmented reality right because you're augmenting reality and i am not a fan of any of the ar stuff to be a little devil's advocate, because I have a, a buddy of mine that works in AR and stuff like that. So I get his perspective on it. And there's an there is an argument to be made that it's preferential to full metaverse because it's at least engaging in the real world at the same time as you're interfacing with the augmented reality. Like at least there's actually like a there's a, a person there as well as like the floating whale next to the person. So it kind of like I, I'm inclined to agree with you, Dr. Sylvie, but I just want to throw that that's out. Like that lesser two evils. That's being like, oh, lesser like, evilism. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I like that's like 
stooping to like, you know, like lowest common denominator, you know, it's like, I don't fair enough. more idealistic than that. Fair enough. Dr. Sylvie's a hunter apologist and I'm an AR apologist over here on the access. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so IRL Wednesday and refurbish Friday. And Love what's that. the next, what's the next thing you're going to work on uh, refurbishing or reusing or repurposing Dr. Sylvie less than a minute left. Well, actually the um, table that I am sitting at right now has a ton of um, water stains and like just heat water stains heat damage. And so I think we're going to either refinish it or repaint it. And it's like our main dining room table. So nice. Maybe for, for the next Yak Fest, you can give us table updates. Yeah. Let us know what's going on with the table. Um, so I'm getting ready to harvest my sweet potatoes. It's, it's not exactly <laughs> refurbishing, but um, the vines have lasted throughout the entire summer. They've handled the hot ass Arizona sun. We've had a really good monsoon season and I'm actually a little bit, I'm going to try to keep some of the vines cause they create like this really nice ground cover. Like everything around me is brown and everyone else has just brown everywhere. And I've. Alrighty, friends, it's the outro, and we're going back to the 1980s. A gentleman named Hulk Hogan. We know him, we love him, but did you know he was a musician as well? Outro time, Hulkamania. It's the end of the show, even though we don't want it to. Gotta do an outro leading to some Hulkster music. If you hurt my podcast, you hurt my pride. Real podcaster, fight for the rights of every speaker. And I wish you guys could see the music video for this. I can't tell if it's like, well, it is definitely a work of art. It's also kind of insulting when they have Sitting Bull's face like <laughs> scroll across the screen and then there's Hulkster in his spandex. And then uh, this is how it ends. The message. It ends with a message from the Hulk. Train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be true to yourself, true to your country, be a real American. <laughs> say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be a real American. <laughs> Anyways, there we go. Uh, ready to ready for this outro? I sure am. And the reading, I actually had to look it, look it up on the good old Wayback Machine on Internet Archive because I think it's been scrubbed from the internet. 
Luckily, I found this article before it was scrubbed, but I can no longer find it other than uh, on archive.org. And it's from freepress.org. And I, I mentioned, I think, a couple episodes ago that the um, Reverend Sun Young Moon was actually a CIA asset. And so I wanted to read the article behind that story because it's bizarre and interesting. So this is from freepress.org. Reverend Moon, cult leader, CIA asset, and Bush family friend. The death of Reverend, this is written in uh, September 4, 2012, so just about 10 years ago. The death of Reverend Sun Myung Moon hopefully ends one of the strangest chapters in U.S. security industrial complex history. The self-proclaimed messiah who owned dozens of businesses including car arms and who once claimed to have presided over Jesus' wedding posthumously in order to get the Christian savior into heaven was ultimately a front in the United States for friends in the CIA like George Herbert Walker Bush, the Babe Ruth of the deep state my editorial there. Moon founded the Washington Times newspaper in 1982 and the Washington Post went out of its way to avoid any mention of the dark side of the moon upon his death Monday, September 3, 2012 at age 92. When George W. Bush faltered in New Hampshire in early 2000, it was Moon's shadowy cultish right-wing network that came to its rescue in South Carolina. Moon's forces helped turn a certain primary defeat into a double-digit victory by spreading Moonies, his zombie-like followers, throughout the state. So this was before the age of Jim Clyburn. Now Jim Clyburn is the one that rigs elections in South Carolina for primaries. Back then, apparently, it was, well, I guess Jim Clyburn works for the, the Democrats, and Reverend Sun Young Moon used to work for the Republicans. As the Washington Post reported, an array of conservative groups have come to reinforce Bush's message with phone banks, radio ads, and mailings of their own. Meanwhile, Moon's Washington Times ran the headline, quote, Bush scoffs at assertion he moved too far right, unquote. The bizarre, almost unbelievable political alliance between the Bush family and Reverend Moon is one of the dirty little secrets of CIA involvement in U.S. domestic politics. To understand the historical significance of Reverend Moon and his Moonies, one must start with Ryochi Sasekawa, identified in a 1992 frontline investigative report as the key money source behind Moon's far-flung world religious business empire. Sasekawa bragged to Time magazine that he was, quote, the world's richest fascist, unquote. That's nice. <laughs> in the 1930s, Sasekawa was one of Japan's leading fascists. He organized a private army of 1,500 men equipped with 20 warplanes. His followers were Japan's version of Mussolini's black shirts. Sasekawa was a key figure in leading Japan into World War II and was an uncondemned Class A war criminal. Following World War II, he was captured and imprisoned for war crimes. According to U.S. documents, Sasekawa was suddenly freed with another accused war criminal, Yoshio Kodama, a prominent figure in Japan's organized crime syndicate, the Yakuza. They were freed in 1948, one year after the National Security Act established the CIA as the successor to the Office of Strategic Services. Boo! And that was Harry Truman. Fuck Harry Truman. Fuck him right in the face. In January 1995, Japan's Kyoto News Service uncovered documents establishing that Kodama's release coincided with an agreement he had made with U.S. military intelligence two months earlier to serve as an informant. Declassified documents link Kodama's release to the CIA. 
During World War II, Kodama activities, according to the U.S. Army counterintelligence records, consisted of systematically looting China of its raw materials and dealing in heroin, guns, tungsten, gold, industrial diamonds, and radium. Both Sasakawa's and Kodama's CIA ties are a reoccurring theme in their relationship with Reverend Moon. In, in 1997, Congressman Donald Frazier launched an investigation into Moon's cult. The 444-page congressional report alleged Mooney involvement with bribery, bank fraud, illegal kickbacks, and arms sales. <laughs> the report revealed that Moon's 20,000-member Unification Church was a creation of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, the KCIA. The Moonies were working with KCIA director Kim Shong phil as a political, that's not, that's not Dr. Phil, this is Kim Shong phil the uh, KCIA director as a political instrument to influence U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. CIA was the agency primarily responsible for founding the KCIA after World War II. The Moon Organization has denied any link with the U.S. intelligence agencies or the Korean government. Sure they have. Reverend Moon, who is Korean, and his two fascist buddies, Kodama and Sasakawa, worked together in the 1960s to form the Asian People's Anti-Communist League with the aid of KCIA agents. The League allegedly used Japanese organized crime money and financial support from Chinese Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. The League concentrated its effort on uniting fascist and right-wing militarists into an anti-communist force throughout Asia. In 1964, League funds established Moon's Freedom Center in the United States. Kodama served as a chief advisor to the Moon's subsidiary, Win Over Communism, an organization that served as a conduit to protect Moon's South Korean financial investments. Sasakawa acted as Win Over Communism's chair. In 1966, it's kind of a funny name, because I assume they mean like we're going to win over communism, but it kind of sounds like they're going to like win over, like they're going to convince communism to become fascist. <laughs> Anyways, in 1966, the League merged with another fascist organization, the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. The merger begat the World Anti-Communist League, sweet, now known as Ron DeSantis's brain. Later, in the 1980s, the retired U.S. Major General John Singlaub emerged from the shadows of the League to become caught up in the Iran-Contra scandal. Cool. As chairman of the World Anti-Communist League, Singlaub enlisted soldiers of fortune and other paramilitary groups to support the Contra cause in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. Yikes. Yikes. Boo. Yikes. Moon's Freedom Center served as the headquarters for the League in the U.S. during the Iran-Contra hearings. The League, oh sorry, uh, served as headquarters for the League in the U.S. During the Iran-Contra hearings, the League was described as a multinational network of Nazi war criminals, Latin American death squad leaders, North American racists, and anti-Semites and fascist politicians from every continent. Working with the KCIA, Moon made his first trip to the U.S. in 1965 and shockingly obtained an audience with former President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Both Ike and former President Harry S. Truman boo, lent their names to letterhead of the Moon-created uh, Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation. In 1969, Moon and Sasakawa jointly formed the Freedom Leadership Foundation, a pro-Vietnam War organization that lobbied the U.S. government. In the 1970s, Moon earned notoriety in the so-called Koreagate scandal. 
Female followers of the Unification Church were accused of entertaining and horizontally lobbying U.S. congressmen while keeping confidential files on those they, quote, lobbied at a Washington Hilton suite rented by the Moonies. The U.S. Senate held hearings concerning Moon's programmatic bribery of U.S. officials, journalists, and others as part of an operation by the KCIA to influence the course of U.S. foreign policy. The Frazier Report documented that Moon was paid by the KCIA to stage demonstrations at the United Nations and run pro-South Korean propaganda campaigns. The congressional investigator for the Frazier Report said, we determined that the Mooney's primary interest, at least in the U.S. at that time, was not religion at all, but was political. It was an attempt to gain power, influence, and authority. Skipping ahead a little bit here. Moon himself lacked clean hands. Moon was convicted of income tax evasion in 1982 and spent a year in a U.S. jail. Also in 1982, the Moon Organization, based at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, helped elect John Kasich, now Ohio's governor, to the U.S. Congress in the 12th District. During the Gulf War, the Mooney-sponsored American Freedom Coalition organized support the troops rallies throughout the country. The Frontline documentary identified the Washington Times as the most costly piece in Moon's propaganda arsenal, with losses estimated as high as $800 million. Still, the documentary asserts that his old friend Sasakawa's virtual monopoly over the Japanese speedboat gambling industry allowed money to continuously flow into U.S. coffers. The Bush-Mooney connection caused considerable controversy in September 1995, when the former president announced he would be spending nearly a week in Japan on behalf of a Mooney front organization, the Women's Federation for World Peace, founded and led by Moon's wife. Bush downplayed accusations of Mooney brainwashing and coercion. The New York Times noted that Bush's presence is seen as some by as lending the group legitimacy. So going down a little bit here. In November of 1996, Bush the Elder arrived in Buenos Aires, Argentina amid controversy over a newly created Spanish-language Moon weekly newspaper called Tiempos del Mundo. Bush smoothed things over as, a, as the principal speaker at the paper's inaugural dinner on November 23rd. The former president then traveled with Moon to neighboring Uruguay to help him open a Montevideo seminary to train 4,200 young Japanese women to spread the word of the Unification Church across Latin America. The young Japanese seminarians were later accused of laundering $80 million through a Uruguayan bank, according to the St. Petersburg Times. The Times also reported that when Reverend Jerry Falwell's Liberty University faced bankruptcy, Moon bailed it out with millions of dollars of loans and grants. In 1997, the New York Times wrote that Moon has been reaching out to conservative Christians in this country in the last few years by emphasizing shared goals like support for sexual abstinence outside of marriage and opposition to homosexuality. Cool. Moon also appealed to Second Amendment advocates. Well, you know, hey. Everyone's got their silver lining. <laughs> in March 1999, the Washington Post reported that the cult leader owned the lucrative car arms uh, company through Cielio Incorporated. It's the shadowy network around the Moonies and the CIA that helped propel both, both George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush into the presidency. Recently, the Messiah's newspaper has spent most of its time attacking President Obama. Well, you know, again, can't argue with him there. Besides the Washington Times, the Unification Church had business holdings, including the United Press International, 
Moon was often shown in the mainstream media presiding over mass marriages of his followers. More importantly was his marriage of convenience to the CIA and the Bush family. His corruption of American politics lives on. So there you go, everybody. There's a little bit deeper dive into the Reverend Sun Young Moon, who passed on in 2012. And that, friends, brings this episode of the Barbarian Noetics podcast to an end. It is getting hot as fuck in my apartment, so I'm going to take a break and turn on the front AC unit. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening, for spending some time with me. Please support the podcast. If you have not done so already, hop over to patreon.com noetics. Become a partner, become a producer of the show if you derive some value from the free show I put out every week, patreon.com noetics. Sign up for just $1 a month. You get bonus content, you get a dream interpretation, you get all sorts of good stuff. If you haven't done so already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP. I need reviews on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple person, and CastBox if you're an Android person. Spread the word. Tell a friend about the Barbarian Noetics podcast so we can expand our tribe of philosopher barbarians and lead in a golden age on Earth. Can't do it without you. I love you all, and I will talk to you all next week. Much love. Peace. Is your love light? Every time I see a girl, you're with another guy. You say you love me. Is that just a word you say? Take me through some changes, girl. Then turn and walk away.
what you're doing Don't try to tell me I just couldn't understand Well, thank you very much. Thank you. How are you, baby? How old are you? How old are you? You're almost double figures. <laughs> <laughs> 